0: In 2013, a group of people who were interested in queer history met at the home of the late Stuart Butler. Stuart, who was 83 at the time, showed them dozens of boxes of papers he had collected and saved throughout his 35-year career as an LGBT plus activist. Stuart then asked the group what was going to happen to his archives when something happened to him. The result was the creation of the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana. The Archives Project chronicles the cultural and historical materials of the LGBT Plus community in Louisiana. The mission of the project is to preserve, protect, promote, and encourage the preservation of these materials and make them available for future generations to access for research and study.
1: Quiet Conversations is proud to have the LGBT Plus Archives Project of Louisiana as a part of this podcast. If you'd like to contribute, please visit them at lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. That's lgbtarchives.org forward slash donate forward slash. Acknowledging and celebrating our differences is essential in hearing another person's views as it can help you approach conversations with a willingness to learn. Keep in mind that your peers may also have different reasons motivating their viewpoints and actions. My name is Arthur Severio, and welcome to Quiet Conversations. From the article, A History of Transgender Healthcare, as the stigma of being transgender begins to ease, medicine is starting to catch up by Farah Naz Khan. An estimated 1.4 million, that's close to 0.6% of the population of the United States identify as transgender. And today, the topic of transgender healthcare is more widely discussed than ever before. Today, there's equal access to bathrooms and there are many popular culture icons who identify as transgender. Magnus Hirschfeld, a German physician, is considered to be the father of transgender healthcare, coined the term transvestite in 1918 at his Institute for Sexual Science in Berlin, defining transvestism as the desire to express one's gender in opposition to their defined sex. Hirschfeld was one of the first to offer the means to achieve sex change either through hormone therapy, sex change operations, or both, when his contemporaries aimed to cure transgender patients of their alleged mental affliction. Hirschfeld's adaption theory supported those who wanted to live according to the gender they felt more aligned with, as opposed to the gender that their sex obligated them to abide by. Much of the history of the Institute's early works were destroyed in the wake of the Nazi book burnings in 1933. But as far as history can prove, Hirschville's Institute was the first to offer gender reassignment surgery. In 1922, Hirschville performed castration on Dora Richter, one of the Institute's employees, who later went on to complete her sex change reassignment in 1931. The Institute's most famous patient was arguably Danish painter Lily Elb, born Elner Wegener, whose life story has been fictionalized in the popular film, The Danish Girl. Startling, in 1930, Elby had five surgeries performed as her male to female transition. Unfortunately, Elby died from infection-related complications of her final surgery. In the 1940s, Dr. Alfred Kinsey was one of the first to use the term transsexual, and his gender studies as he helped introduce America to a concept that for some reason still seems foreign to many today. I'd like to take this moment to introduce my friend Lisa, who, in her humble opinion, swears she is no historian. However, Oxford Languages defines historian as an expert in or a student of history, especially that of a particular period, geographical region or social phenomenon. Lisa and I belong to the same Facebook group. And as you know, I love Chris Owens and her posts seem to center around all the dancing girls who worked on the famous strip called Bourbon Street. Needless to say, I had something to keep me busy during the pandemic, learning all I could about the history of Bourbon Street. Here's my interview with Lisa.
0: Hey, can you hear me here? I can hear you. Fine. Yes. Let's go. You ready? Let's do it. Should we start with Bourbon Street?
1: Well, everything should start with Bourbon Street.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Christine and then we can talk about Charlotte. But even before that. Colin Tan had got to New Orleans with her a butch lover, who was like a drag king. You know, so let's just put a little disclaimer in there that I am by no means a historian. I just have some interest in Bourbon Street and in the art of burlesque.
1: Well, you certainly must have started young. What started you on all this?
0: I just always had that interest, and then when I finally left my parents' house and I came downtown and, <laughs> and started hanging around with more colorful people like myself. I met some exotic dancers, some strippers and them and the hippies who I used to hang around with. They were all cool because they all accepted me for being just exactly who I wanted to be. I love that. It was my first experience to meet somebody that accepted me for myself. Actually, they encouraged me. I think that trans girls and strippers have a lot of the same things in common. We like to dress up. Uh, Dancers like to hang out with us because we're not trying to do the things to them that a lot of people want to do to them, you know? Some people being the sexual off It's not that way with us. So I just started meeting a lot of people that had a lot of knowledge about Bourbon Street. And I got involved with a Facebook page. There is a lot of historians there. I began working on Bourbon Street in 1976. And until 1982, I worked at the 500 Club. And Sandra Sexton was the star then. It was a really swanky club at the time. They had a jazz band that played Dixieland jazz behind the dancers. There was about three strippers there, but it was a variety show. There was an Elvis impersonator. There was a guy that had marionette. There were acrobats, and they booked different acts in and out of there. And the girls that worked in the service bar worked for the company for years and years and years. And they began working as maids for the dancers in their dressing rooms, helping them get dressed, catching their clothes as they take them off. One of them, Gertie, used to tell me about Christine Jorgensen. Christine was an entertainer, and she got booked into a lot of different kinds of places, including burlesque shows. She was booked a couple of different times on Bourbon Street. About 1955, I believe that she danced at the Club Slipper, which was in the 400 block. We used to know it as Your Father's Mustache. And Christine used to do a few weeks here and a few weeks there. She was kind of toured the whole country. And while she was working at the Club Slippers, she made $5,000 a week. That's in 1955. That's some pretty significant money.
1: Wow, that's almost like $58,000.
0: And in the 60s, she worked at the show bar, which was at 228 Bourbon Street.
1: So, you know, women in New Orleans have a tendency of telling the truth. What exactly did Gertie say about Christine?
0: She um, just said that you couldn't tell. She would have never known. Christine was just so pretty, so feminine. She was talented. She sang. She danced. Because it was a burlesque show, she told body jokes. She was a really good entertainer.
1: Let's take a moment here to learn about Charlotte Frances McLeod, who was the second American woman to undergo gender-affirming surgery. Before her transition, McLeod served in the Army from 1948 to
0: 1949. Charlotte was originally from New Orleans, when everybody was reading in 1953 about Christine coming home and going to Idlewild and having the press, her being on the headlines of every newspaper, Charlotte was working as an accountant down there in New Orleans. That at the time her name was Charlie. Charlotte had gotten an inheritance. So she took her inheritance and she got a ticket on an ocean liner and she went. Straight to Denmark. By the time she got to Denmark, the Danes had made it illegal to perform surgery on anybody that wasn't Danish. Charlotte got a doctor to perform the operation on her. He was uh, supposed to be strung out on morphine. She stayed at his house a few days while he came down off the morphine and then he did the surgery on his kitchen table. Well, of course, he botched it because that had happened. The Danes put her in the hospital and fixed her up, made her surgery successful. She went back to New Orleans, and she thought that she'd try entertaining like Christine was doing. So she got a contract in a club. It was in the 200 block right across the street from the show bar. It was called the Moulin Rouge. Well, when she got there, the owner of the club, Elmo Baden, who was the brother of the last madame in New Orleans, Norma Wallace, expected Charlotte to do the a hardcore bums and grind and go out and be drink, and Charlotte didn't, <laughs> Charlotte didn't see herself like that at all. She wanted to sing and dance, and she was a bit of a comedian herself. She wanted to tell jokes. So she walked across the street to the show bar and she got hired on the spot. Elmo took her to court and made it so that she couldn't perform anywhere on Bourbon Street. Frank Ferrara, who was the owner of the show bar, paid for her lawyer and they were able to beat Elmo in court. She was the feature presentation in Frank Ferrara's for several months there. She left New Orleans and went to New York after that and uh, continued to entertain. I guess she was supposed to have a pretty good show. There was an entertainer there named Cupcake and she wrote her little songs. Charlotte would sing the songs. So transsexuals have been on Bourbon Street for years and years and years. And she went on to be a great entertainer. She actually had a gig in New York City, and they put her in between Gypsy Rosalie and Mae West.
1: Let's flash forward to 1971. Helen Reddy is topping the charts with her hit, I Am Woman, while Bobby Gentry was singing about what I believe to be a transsexual dancer named Belinda. And let's not forget the gay characters who were having their go at destroying each other in William Friedkin's The Boys in the Band. Anyway, in our last episode, we learned how my friend Regina Adams was breaking society's racial barriers by being half of an interracial couple. But Regina was about to start pushing sexual identity barriers as well. Here's my friend Regina.
2: You can't burn us up. Uh, the upstairs fire was a galvanizing event. It did bring the gay community in New Orleans together. But they found out that... There's a lot of things going on they didn't know about. Like for instance, you couldn't go walk the streets and drive at that time. A lot of queens that have passed away were all part of changing that. Gay people are humans. We're people too, and we should have the same rights as any other people.
1: Today is the 14th of June. 2023. 2023, I'm with Regina Adams.
2: we
1: the an oldest living drag queen in captivity. A legend in her, almost said her own mind. A legend. Still performing, still relevant, still current, and still modern. So tell me something, Regina, you were born in what year? 1951. And you grew up where? I
2: grew up in Mid-City until I was 10 years old. My mom was divorced with three kids. We remarried when I was 10, and my stepfather, who was a virgin marine, uh, bought a home in Metairie. And so I graduated from East Jefferson High School.
1: In what year? 1970, 1970. 1970. Now, were you coming to the French Quarter at that time? I was sneaking down to the French
2: Quarter. My stepfather was a Mormon. He sent himself to the Mormon Church. I was going to seminary in the mornings before school for two hours and then the bus would take us on to school
1: bus. So tell me a little bit about your mama and your relationship.
2: My stepfather and I got in a fight. He hit me and I packed up all my stuff in two swagging bags clothes out of my closet, in my underwear and my socks and everything, I had two swag with bags. I walked out the front door and I turned around and I said, I'll never set foot in this house again as long as you're here. And my stepfather and I never got along. My mother said when I was ten years old, she said she liked him. But he was a bad alcoholic. And when he did drunk, he beat us. So I left home. In a bad fight, he hit me, I flew into the wall. And my older brother and I were sharing the bedroom, and he was in the Boy Scouts, and he had a Boy Scout axe at the bottom of the bunk bed. And I grabbed the axe, and threw it at my stepfather, and it shaved the side of his face and stuck into the bedroom door. And I realized I couldn't kill him, and I was trying to at the time, but I wasn't really thinking. I was just mad. So I said, "Before I go to jail for the rest of my life for killing you, I'm gonna get the fuck out of here." And I started packing my stuff, and then I was walking down the hallway of my mother's house to the living room and I got to the front door my mother came saying, where are you going don't leave where are you going I said call my mama that's my dad's mother we called her mama and my mother's mother was grandma so she called my mom and told her I was on the way and I said if I can't sleep there tonight I'll sleep in a bar I said I'll find a place tomorrow but I said I'm going to tell you right now I'm never set foot in this house to get as long as you're married to that SOB and I stormed out the house and I walked to the Airline Highway, walked down the Airline Highway from Green Acres and Battery on down to the court. And I sat in the park for a couple of hours and then I went over to my grandmother's house. And We didn't have cell phones then, so I knew she'd be worried because I didn't go straight over there. So I went over there and knocked on the door and she said, come on in, I already made up your bed. She said, well, just the rest and we'll talk in the morning. This was like two o'clock in the morning by then. We talked in the morning and she said she'd stay here as long as she wanted. You know, I said, well, i got to get up. I said, i got to go find a job. She said, i got to have a you know, way to pay rent. She said, you don't have to pay me rent. She said, just help out with the groceries and the bill and all that. I stayed with her for like three months and then I got an apartment of my own. And that was in 1970, All this happened between 71 and 73. My life was in turmoil. So, Marcy. Oh, we hit it off the first night we met. We were good drinking buddies. But as soon as I graduated from school, I started sneaking down to the quarter. I went to the quarter the first time for a job interview. And I met this guy that was interviewing me who turned out to be gay. And I didn't really know what gay was. I knew I was different, but I didn't really know I was gay. I just knew that I was attracted to men. Since I have four brothers, you know. I knew I wasn't like them,
1: but I didn't know what to do. And when did you go to your first bar?
2: In my first bar, I was uh, stuck down there one night, and went to what was called David's, Then it was where the ministro and where the Oz is now. And that's where I ran into Marcia Marcel the first She was living as a boy. She had a lead drag yet. and I hang out all night. And then i crawled in my bedroom window so they would think that I came home. They didn't hear me come home about four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, and get under the covers. Then when the alarm went off at six thirty, seven o'clock, I would still be tired, but I just tell them I didn't sleep well.
1: So let's go on here, Lee. Talk about what it was like for Christine. And for Charlotte to take hormones or anyone that was transitioning at that time, what did they take and how did it affect their bodies?
0: Well, I don't even think that the first person got surgery in the United States until 1962. That was a person named Hetty Joe Starr, who was also Burlesque star. She began as a carny and she had a little show, but that didn't happen until 1962. So I think that, um, Harry Benjamin started giving hormones out, um, the very late fifties or 1960. So I don't know how it was for, uh, Christine and um Charlotte to take hormones. I imagine once they got back to the states that they were able to find a doctor to support them because they had already taken them but um that was um uh that was that was ter- unknown territory back in those days. I know that the hormones used to be so much stronger back then. Now there's a lot of health concerns about them because they can do things like give you high blood pressure and uh, wear and tear on your health. Even in my time since I began taking them, which was in the 70s, all the hormones that I used to take, you can no longer get because they're too strong. They say they're bad for your health. I recently moved from one state to another, and even when I got here, they uh, they were uh, leery about prescribing me for the hormones that I'd been taking previously. They're worried about your health now. Obviously, they both took hormones because they were pretty girls and soft. They both looked like women, they were unreadable. So, um,. I'm not sure how that worked for them.
1: Oxford Languages defines gender as the male sex or female sex, especially when considered with reference to social and cultural differences rather than biological ones or one of a range of other identities that do not correspond to established ideas of male and female. From Google, in 1976, a woman named Rhoda received a prescription for two drugs, estrogen and progestin. Twelve months later, a local reporter noted Rhonda's surprisingly soft skin and visible breasts. He wrote that the drugs made her so completely female. Indeed, that was the point. The University of Virginia Medical Center in nearby Charlottesville had a clinic specifically for women like Rhoda. In fact, doctors there had been prescribing hormones and performing surgeries, what today we would call gender-affirming care, for years, the founder of that clinic, Dr. Milton Edgerton, had cut his teeth caring for transgender people at John Hopkins University in the 1960s. There, he was part of a team that established the nation's first university-based gender identity clinic in 1966. From NBC News' website, in Denver, Colorado, 2017, James Lowell Pennington was arrested on suspicion of first-degree assault after using an army medical kit to remove a trans woman's testicles at her request. According to a police report, the surgery took approximately 90 minutes, but the patient's wife later called 911 to report a large amount of blood that came through the suture. James Lowell Pennington was arrested on suspicion of first-degree assault after using an army medical kit to remove the trans woman's testicles at her request. The patient, in his defense, was quoted as saying that he was only doing what she asked him to do. From the Daily Mail, a Belgian transsexual has chosen to die by euthanasia after a botched sex change operation to complete his transformation into a man left him a monster. Nathan Verheis, 44, died yesterday afternoon after being allowed to have his life ended on the grounds of unbearable psychological suffering. It is understood to be the first time that someone in Belgium has chosen euthanasia after a sex change and comes soon after it emerged that it is now the cause of nearly 1 in 50 deaths. Born a girl named Nancy, his transformation into a man, and with hormone therapy in 2009, followed by a mastectomy and finally an operation to construct a penis last year. But the procedures did not go according to plan. In the hours before his death, Nathan said... I was ready to celebrate my new birth, but when I looked in the mirror, I was disgusted with myself. My new breast did not match my expectations, and my new penis had symptoms of rejection. I do not want to be a monster. Quiet Conversations is written and researched by me and produced with the best of the information that I have found at the time of this broadcast. The speaker's views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of myself, this podcast, or anyone else. The material information presented here is for entertainment purposes only. The Quiet Conversations podcast name and all forms and abbreviations are the property of me, Arthur Severio, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and follow on Apple Podcasts. My name is Arthur Severio, and I thank you for joining us.
3: If they ask you what day it is, tell them it's your day. Tell them it's going your way, if they ask you what time it is, tell them it's your time. Shut